Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. The Whitney Humanities Center at Yale University presents a lecture by David Brossand, Professor Emeritus at Columbia University, on painting music in Renaissance Venice for the Frankie Seminar, Art and Music in Venice. This is the third of four lectures for this seminar, held in the fall of 2011. Music, music found a natural, a natural home in Venice. Indeed, it would be hard to find another state in which music was appropriated to play as rich and diverse a cultural role, in both theory and practice, in ideological rhetoric, as well as civic and religious spectacle. On the loggetta that Jacopo Sansovino created at the base of the Campanile of San Marco, opposite the main entrance to the Doge's palace, he gave figural expression to the highest ideals of this most serene republic. Within the niches on this porch, four bronze statues personify the values of the Republic. Minerva stands for the wisdom of the state, Mercury for the eloquence necessary for good governance, peace for the goal of policy, and the guarantor of the well-being of the polity. <clears throat> it is the figure of Apollo, of course, that offers particular insight into the rhetorical poetics of the Venetian ideologizing imagination. First, as the artist himself explained, Apollo stands for the uniqueness of Venice, since Apollo signifies the sun, il sole. And the sun is truly one, is truly unique, one alone, un solo, and no more. And therefore is Apollo called the sun, sole. Thus, this republic is singular, una sola, and no more, and singular in the world, for its constitution of laws, for its union, and for its uncorrupted liberty, ruled with justice and wisdom. Beyond that, everyone knows how much this nation delights in music, and thus Apollo stands for music, since from the union of its magistrates joined together with inexpressible temperament, there issues extraordinary harmony which perpetuates this marvelous government. Therefore, was Apollo depicted. In thus figuring Apollo for music, Sansovino gave classical pagan form to a concept that had been presented in, purely Christian, in a purely Christian context in earlier state iconography. Most monumentally, in the mural above the ducal tribunal in the great council hall of the Doge's palace representing the coronation of the Virgin in Paradise. The vast canvas by Tintoretto and his workshop now on that wall replaced the original mid-14th century fresco by Guariento, which was severely damaged by fire in 1577. It is this late Gothic depiction, in this late Gothic depiction, Paradise is conceived architecturally as the heavenly Jerusalem the great event of the coronation of Mary as Queen of Heaven is accompanied by the music of an angelic band at the base of the structure. Visually resounding in the great council hall, those celestial harmonies extended to the governance of the Republic. Medieval political theorists had celebrated Venice as a regimen temporatum, the realization of an ideal of mixed government. The doge represented the, monarch the monarchical element the Senate, the aristocratic, and the Maggio Consiglio, the Great Council, the democratic component. 
within the rhetoric of Venetian political ideology, music came to assume a role as the appropriate symbol of a government well-tempered, harmonious, consonant, balanced in the relationship of its parts. By the middle of the 16th century, this traditional temperance could be transposed even more directly into musical terms, comparing the harmonic structure of the Venetian government to the consonants of the diapason, the octave, in which the extreme voices harmonize with the mean voices of the diatessaron, the fourth, and the diapente, the fifth. By the 16th century, however, heaven was no longer conceived in purely architectural terms. Rather, more nebulous structures came to represent what was in effect a more musical conception. Concentric rings of cloud and light emanating from a divine center came to represent the celestial harmony. The sound of heaven, the music of the spheres was made visually manifest with or without music making angels. But angels could hardly disappear from this Christian realm. They continued to serenade the enthroned virgin, filling pictured sacred spaces with sound and establishing aural continuities with the worshiper, the viewer become listener. And in, in their intimacy with their instruments, these angelic players convince us of their professional engagement. Whether inviting us to listen with them to that higher sound or to the tuning of their strings. Venetian painters understood the act of musical performance. For some, it may even be that their own musical education went beyond practice. In Carpaccio's painting of St. Augustine in his study, musical scores play an important role in declaring the significance of the image itself. The legend has it that Augustine felt inspired to write a treatise on the glory and joy of the blessed souls in heaven for which project he was about to appeal to St. Jerome for some guidance. At that very moment, however, Jerome died and appeared to Augustine in a brilliant vision, only to reprimand such chutzpah. A voice sounded from the light which declared Augustine guilty of too great a presumption that he, while still in mortal flesh, should have thought of understanding eternal happiness, which would not be possible for any mortal. Commenting on the situation are the two musical scores so prominently displayed in the lower right corner of the painting. On the loose sheet of folded paper propped up at the very base of the field, pressed against the picture plane, the music has been identified <clears throat> as a three-part composition written for men's voices. Its lively rhythm marks it as a secular work, possibly a Venetian folk song. The higher score, in a small quarto volume, is set before us on a lectern. The rhythm of its music is slower, more decorous, indeed hymnal. Only one word of its text remains legible, Deus. Representing a contrast between secular and sacred, between lower and higher, these scores embody the rhythmic ascent discussed in the sixth book of Augustine's own De Musica. The ascent from rhythm in the earthly sense to the immortal rhythm which is in divine truth. This, by the way, was a reading of, of the interpretation of Edward Lewinsky, and I eliminated my footnote reference to him to shorten the paper, and now I'm lengthening it again. 
As participants in the evolving culture of the early 16th century, Venetian painters were increasingly responsive to new trends in poetry and in music. The leading artist of the new generation was Giorgione, the painter who effectively revolutionized the art of oil painting on canvas. And it is the name of Giorgione that opens new prospects on the relationship of music to painting in Venice. Celebrated for his talent as a lutenist and, a sing and singer, the painter was welcomed into the social world of young patricians, and his musicality seemed a natural accompaniment to his amorous inclinations. According to the artist's biographer, Giorgio Vasari, he delighted in the joys of love, and he loved the sound of the lute, which he played and sang so divinely that he was often invited to various musical events and social gatherings of noble persons. To painting, Giorgione introduced a new softening of form, a suggestive sfumato. Obscuring outline, this tonalism added a distinctly subjective quality to the art. Epitomizing this new art, this Giorgionismo, is the painting known as the Concert Champetre, the attribution of which has been a continuing subject of debate. In the Louvre, the label assigns it to Titian. A more recent alternative suggests Sebastiano del Piombo as its author. Both were disciples of Giorgione. His creations, in Vasari's words, creati suoi. Indeed, it was said that Sebastiano's first training was not in painting, but in music. That he was so accomplished a lutenist that he too, like Giorgione, was welcomed as an intimate by the young patricians of Venice we shall return to this challenging painting. But now, I want to leap ahead 50 years to Paolo Veronese's great canvas of the marriage at Cana, which offers intriguing pictorial testimony to the musicianship of Venetian painters. As read in the 17th century, the foreground quartet features Veronese himself playing the viola, Jacopo Bassano playing the flute, Jacobo Tintoretto the violin, and Titian on bass. Although only the identities of Titian and Veronese carry any physiognomic conviction. Nonetheless, Tintoretto, if not the fiddler at Cana, was indeed celebrated for his musical talent. Although Vasari, as a Tuscan, could only condemn what he considered this painter's apparently casual attitude to the ideas of finish in painting, he opened his brief account of the artist by declaring among his primary virtues his ability to play various instruments. Tintoretto's own pictorial engagement with music begins early in his career with a painting he did for Pietro Aretino, the musical contest between Marcius and Apollo, the mortal challenge to the immortal god that serves, and as we will see, as a major occasion for the representation of musical performance in Renaissance painting. His musical interests and talents evidently extended to his daughter, Marietta, who, beyond her beauty and grace, was celebrated for her ability to play the clavicembalo and other instruments, as well as to paint very well. Whatever their links to contemporary Venice, and whatever their day jobs, the band of instrumentalists in Veronese's Marriage at Cana is hardly a casual perergon in this monumental composition. 
prominently placed within the pictorial field, anchoring the central axis of the composition, these musicians are set directly below Christ. They perform around a table at the center of which stands an hourglass, totally without musical, without function in musical practice, this time-marking object nonetheless confirms the specific thematic relevance of music to the subject of the painting. That is, music as measured time. On this occasion at Cana, the hourglass alludes to the words spoken by Jesus to his mother, mine hour is not yet come. Directly above Christ, the butchering of the lamb prophesies the sacrifice of that hour to come. Music, then, has become part of the painter's iconographic palette, keynoting, as it were, the larger significance of the painting. We do not know how proficiently Veronese himself may have played the viola, or any other instrument, but there can be little doubt about his engagement with music theory. The commission to paint the marriage of Cana in 1562 followed upon his completion of the pictorial decoration of the Villa Barbaro at Mazer. This was the most overtly harmonic of, of, of Andrea Palladio's architectural designs. The patrons were the brothers Marcantonio and Daniele Barbaro. Daniele was responsible for the most ambitious translation of and commentary on Vitruvius a project in which Palladio was intimately involved as professional consultant as well as designer. On the plan of the Villa Barbaro, published in his own four books on architecture, Palladio inscribed numbers that conformed to a system of harmonic ratios, as Rudolf Witkova demonstrated many years ago. It was to music theory, with its Pythagorean basis, that architectural theorists like Daniele Barbaro appealed in their effort to articulate rules of proportion, of harmonic proportion in architecture. As Witkova suggested in poetic conclusion to his analysis, under a Renaissance dome, a Barbaro could experience a faint echo of the inaudible music of the spheres. Charged with decorating the walls and vaults of Palladio's structure at Mazer, Veronese was clearly responsive to the musical basis of its concetto. In the heavenly spheres figured in the central vault and more explicitly and prosaically in the female musicians populating the fictive niches at the crossing. Veronese had already demonstrated his mastery of pictorial music making on the vault of Sansovino's new library. Vasari saw this allegory of music a decade later in 1566 and he offers a basic reading of the image. He describes, and I quote, three very beautiful young women, one of whom, the most beautiful, is playing a great uh, a bass viol. Looking down at the fingerboard of the instrument, her pose showing that her ear and her voice are, are fixed intently on the sound. Of the other two, one is playing a lute and the other singing from a book. Near these women is a cupid without wings who is playing a harpsichord signifying that love is born from music, or rather, that love is always in company with music. And because he never parts from her, he is without wings. 
In the same picture, he painted Pan, the god of shepherds, according to the poets, with certain pipes made of the bark of trees, almost as votive offerings, consecrated to him by shepherds who have been victorious in the playing. Following Vasari's interpretation in the 17th century, Veronese's biographer Carlo Ridolfi singled out for comment the presence of Cupid, who is said by some to have been the inventor of music, since playing an instrument and singing are incitements to love. Musica incitamentum amoris. Veronese's <clears throat> painting takes us beyond the intellectual abstractions of music theory to the poetically sensuous realm of practice. Although it is modally different and more explicit, this allegory of music is nonetheless thematically related to the Georgianesque Concert Champetre. Whatever, whatever its attribution, <clears throat> this pastoral concert was the most immediate inspiration for Walter Pater's celebrated dictum in his essay on the school of Giorgione. All art constantly aspires to the condition of music. It was in this particular Venetian <clears throat> art that the 19th century esthete found the perfect moments of music itself, the making or hearing of music, of music, song, or its accompaniment are themselves prominent as subjects. Perhaps more than any other critic, Peter has defined for us the essence of what we mean by the art of Giorgione. This pictorial poetry, music at the poolside, or mingled with the sound of the pitcher in the well, or heard across running water, or among the flocks, the tuning of instruments, people with intent faces as if listening to detect the smallest interval of musical sound, the smallest undulation in the air, or feeling for music in thought on a stringless instrument, ear and finger refining themselves infinitely in the appetite for sweet sound, a momentary touch of an instrument in the twilight. Without ever, having actually, without ever actually citing the painting, Peter offers a most resonant description of the affect of the Concert Champetre. <clears throat> in this pictorial gathering of urban poet, rustic shepherd, and nude nymphs, the sound of music lingers in the imagination of the viewer. The strummed instrument, the strummed strings of the lute, the voices implicit in the intimate positioning of the central trio, especially the dialogical relationship of the two male participants. Listening with our eyes, like Pater, we acknowledge the aural analogy to the suggestive visual appeal of Georgionesque tonalism. The setting is the locus aminus, the requisite site of such pastoral encounters. This is the world of the pastoral tradition of antiquity, with its nymphs and shepherds, its music and poetry, its natural and unforced eroticism. The voice, however, is that of the civilized urban poet celebrating a more natural existence. His status as interloper is marked by his fashionable dress, distinguishing him from his rustic companion, a barefoot shepherd. More significantly, the instruments associated with, with them signify a more resonant hierarchy. The lute, stringed and capable of accompanying the poetry of song, is the modern exemplar of Apollo's lyre, and represents music's higher cultural ambition, union with the word and the human voice. 
sorry. The, the wooden flute or recorder held by the nymph, but clearly associated with the rustic youth, is a wind instrument, modern air to the reed pipes of half bestial pan. Precluding the player's singing, its breath is a direct expression of the body. It remains the natural voice of passion, eloquent perhaps, but inarticulate. The lowly pipes are the natural instruments of the pastoral mode, which had recently been revived in Jacopo Sanazzaro's popular uh, Arcadia, which is published first in 1502. In the epilogue, the plaintive poet, his song now ended, addresses his rustic and rural panpipes, worthy because of your lowness to be sounded by a shepherd not more cultured but more fortunate than I. The songs or sighs of these country poets most often deal with love, poignantly and longingly. Music was a central component of the classical traditions of pastoral poetry. Arcadians alone know how to sing, declared Virgil's Gallus, sadly lamenting unrequited love. Eclogue 10. The musical contest, singing matches between goatherds and shepherds, was an occasion that often elicited such poetry. Mat matches witnessed and recorded, or rather invented, by the urban visitor to the countryside. The concert champêtre may not represent a particular dialogue between the typical protagonists of such poetry, but it perfectly embodies the general ethos of the pastoral, its typical dramatis personae, its structures of communication, and its natural setting, the nudity of the nymphs of the place assuring its erotic undertone. And its contrast between high and low, strings and wind instruments, will continue to be explored in poetic paintings throughout the 16th century. Of Giorgione's two immediate disciples, we have, as we've noted, Sebastiano, who left Venice for Rome in 1511, was especially noted for his musical virtuosity. We have no such notice of Titian's musical abilities. Nonetheless, more than any other painter of the Venetian tradition, Titian explored the expressive potential of music in painting. He clearly understood the manual tension involved in performing at the keyboard and he well understood the erotic implications of the flute. His pastoral rendering of the three ages of man abandons the tonal suggestiveness of Giorgione for a greater formal clarity and therefore programmatic explicitness. Titian brings the pastoral conventions to more precise allegorical focus and moralizing purpose here. The joy of love, initially embodied in the infants asleep under the watchful eye of a cupid, finds poignantly ambivalent expression in the young couple. Its transience is finally confirmed by the old man meditating on a pair of skulls. <clears throat> the gendering of nude and clothed is reversed in this musical couple, effectively heightening the erotic charge. The passion of the wind instrument is made all the more explicit as the girl with two flutes makes clear its phallic association. Without tonal softening, Titian's art offers greater tactile immediacy and physical presence. Surfaces unveiled, the sound imagined by the eye is therefore sharper. 
The most legible music in Titian's art appears in his Bacchanale of the Andrians, one of several canvases for the studiolo of Alfonso d'Este, Duke of Ferrara. These were paintings based on ancient ekphrases, that is, descriptions of lost pictures from antiquity, whether real or imagined. That provided a challenge to the Renaissance artist to reconstruct ancient imagery, a true renaissance of classical antiquity. The ancient description in this case from the Imagines of Philostratus the Elder tells of the blessed state of the island of Andros, whose river, thanks to a gift from Bacchus, runs not with water, but with wine. On this occasion, Bacchus and his train make their annual visit to the island, and the Andrians celebrate their blessed river and its contents and the god to whom they owe the gift, drinking and dancing and singing, their voices thick with wine. Titian's painting remains quite faithful to the description with one additional detail. The sheet of music in the center foreground. The music itself has been attributed to Adrian Villart, then court composer at Ferrara and soon to become Maestro di Capella at San Marco in Venice. It is a round that sets a text in French, appropriately a drinking song, qui boit et ne revoit, il ne sait que boire soi. Who drinks and does not drink again knows not what drinking is. This modern interpolation conforms perfectly to the spirit of the ancient image. However, as with Carpaccio's musical footnotes, we can hardly assume that the addition was an inspiration of the painter himself. It was more likely suggested by a member of the court of Ferrara, which included, in addition to Villart, the greatest poet of the age, Ludovico Ariosto. If the biographers know, nowhere mention Titian's own talent as a musician, we do know that in 1540, the painter acquired a keyboard instrument from Alessandro Trasontino, known as Alessandro dagli Organi, in exchange for which he promised to paint his portrait. Our source is Pietro Aretino, who wrote to the instrument maker to celebrate the deal between the two great masters of, respectively, the visual and the aural. In return for one of those instruments that with sweet harmony seizes the soul in ecstasy, Titian will portray Alessandro with the vividness of nature that amazes everyone. It has generally been assumed that Titian traded the portrait for an organ. But Aretino specifically writes that the instrument was an arpicordo. Whatever the keyboard instrument acquired in the exchange, it is the positive organ that enters Titian's iconography. In at least three paintings, a musician serenades, somewhat awkwardly, a reclining female nude, identifiable as a Venus by her intimate association with her son, Cupid, whose absence in the third version may actually deprive her of that divinity. The basic compositional type, with its reclining female nude, derives ultimately from Giorgione's Sleeping Venus, a painting left unfinished at the painter's early death in 1510 and brought to completion by Titian. Titian later took the nude indoors and awakened her in the celebrated Venus of Urbino, which was ready for delivery in 1538. A decade later, he delivered another figure of Venus to the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V. Although that painting can no longer be securely identified, 
its basic invention is very likely preserved in one of the many variations on the motif of the reclining nude produced by Venus, uh, produced by Titian and his studio in the following years. These variations involved a number of basic decisions, compositional and stylistic. With the reversal of the direction of the nude, Titian established a more natural visual scansion from left to right, the potential of which is more fully realized by the addition of the serenading courtier. He sits at the edge of the couch at the feet of his goddess, his hands on the keyboard extended to the left. He turns 180 degrees to gaze directly at the body of his Venus. The introduction of the courtier musician transforms the initial invention. What had been essentially an iconic situation in which the incarnation of beauty was presented directly to the viewer now becomes a more narrative event. The viewer becomes witness to an action, the act of courtship. Confronting once again clothed male and nude female and identifying perhaps more naturally with the clothed figure, the viewer responds to the tactile in invitation of female flesh, even as her nudity may distance her, removing her to another, to a higher level of reality. The object of the courtier's desire, she remains essentially unresponsive to him. <clears throat> Affectionate response is reserved instead for her caressing son or her pet dog. Beyond the open loggia or balcony, in the two Prado canvases, there extends a cultivated landscape, a deer park. Along its tree-lined alley, a couple of lovers stroll into the distance. A fountain set within the park features a sculpted satyr holding an urn upon his head. At the edge of the basin perches a peacock. Juxtaposing the half-bestial figure of lust with the bird of Juno, goddess of marriage, the fountain would seem to synthesize two aspects of the passion that informs the image. And the natural legitimacy of mating may be further commented by the little scene of a buck uh, sniffing a doe to the right of the fountain in the composition with the dog. I don't know if, how legible that is there, but it's worth noting. The positive organ can only seem a rather ungainly instrument in this setting of amorous desire. However effectively its row of pipes may frame the composition at the left, initiating the arboreal progression into the space of the background deer park, its position forces an awkward volt face on its player, whose manual responsibilities and visual attention are thus split. However portative, the organ seems hardly the ideal instrument for such romantic serenading. Not least because if it is to make a sound, there must be someone behind pumping the bellows. Which requirement might raise an interesting question regarding Titian's painted scenario. Whether or not Titian gave any thought to this issue, he did adjust the instrument in his subsequent variation on the motif. Substituting the organ by a, with a lute, a more traditional and a more much more comfortable accompaniment to song. This new composition is developed in two canvases, one in Cambridge, the other in New York. 
A taller format accommodates a shift in the pose of the reclining Venus, who now raises her torso more vertically, her gaze turned upward. Although the pose of the lute player is close to that of the organist, it is more natural and relaxed. There is less tension here. The leftward extension of the instrument's neck and the fretting hand do not make the same performative demands on the keyboard as the keyboard. The plucking hand is unseen, but nonetheless participates in the turn of the player's body and toward the object of his desire. Indeed, the diagonal fall along his shoulders to his extended right, along his shoulders to his extended right elbow establishes a clear visual vector. It is just such a natural extension of the musician's body <clears throat> that was absent in the pose of the organ player. The courtier and the lady have been brought closer together, not only by a more intimate physical proximity, but also through the music itself. The object of his attention, the nude woman here finds a fuller definition of her divinity. Rather than lost in a kind of amorous gossip with Cupid, she is now crowned by her son, confirmation of her stature as goddess of beauty. Although no more than her predecessors does she acknowledge the courtier's attention, she now participates in the musical activity. Venus holds a recorder loosely in one hand. Presumably, she had been, play she had been playing, but has stopped to turn her attention to a higher sphere. The part books of the interrupted madrigal concert lie open, marked tenor and bassus in the more finished Cambridge canvas. And in the corner, a viola da gamba is propped against the couch. The social construct inherent in the composition involves a further dimension of its mode of address. The narrative line is determined by a movement across the field of the picture plane. The relation of lover to beloved, united by glance and by shared music making, runs parallel to that plane. Crossing the barrier of the frame, however, the composition makes a direct address to the beholder Partly established by the accommodation of the body of Venus, turned to the frontal plane, is an invitation to enter into the fictive world of the image. The viola da gamba, awaiting its player, suggests and in effect requires his participation. Insofar as they have been subject to serious interpretation and not considered mere erotica, Titian's pictures of Venus and a musician have generally been interpreted in light of a neoplatonic paragone of the senses the discussion of the relative merits of seeing and hearing in the perception of beauty. The sense of touch, however, having to do only with mere sensual appetite, which is lust, not love, was naturally excluded from serious consideration. In his commentary on the symposium, Marsilio Ficino had outlined three ways of knowing beauty, which is the object of love's desire. That of the soul through the mind, that of the body through the eyes, that of the voice through the ears. The other senses of smell, taste, and touch are base and can play no role in the perception of beauty. They are the way not of love, but of lust. These doctrines receive a more relaxed and social statement in popular books like Castiglione's Book of the Courtier and were further echoed in many a Trattato d'Amore. Sight and sound are indeed central to Titian's venereal images, which are most explicitly about the perception of beauty. 
The space traversing glance of the musician enacts the Petrarchan notion of the eyes as gateways to the heart. And while that glance establishes and reinforces the basic narrative impulse of the composition, the very sound of his music fills the ear of his Venus with sweet harmony. Music, as Ficino and many others said, should have words so that it might appeal to the mind. But the poetry in this world, at least, is in inevitably amorous. Musica intitamentum amoris. And yet it is the very nature of Titian's painting and its nude figure to appeal to the sense of touch. Of the two versions of Venus and the lute player, the New York picture is looser in execution, apparently unfinished in parts. The physiognomic definition of Venus and Cupid seems to have been a subsequent clarification, whether in the studio or by a follower after the master's death. And yet even though preserving an already established composition, this studio record represents a further development of the basic pictorial idea, a rounding out of its musical theme. The grove of the Cambridge picture is populated by deer, as though Titian were returning the creatures from the cultivated park of the earlier settings to a more natural habitat. The grove of the New York canvas hosts a different scene. Rather than amorous deer, a circle of figures dances to the music of a bagpipe. Titian here gives us the full range of musical hierarchy. From the stringed instruments of Apollo, instrument of Apollo, down to the pipes of Pan, from poetry's appeal to the mind to the somatic sound of the wind instrument, the rustic bagpipe representing the lowest level of music making. Just such a distinction, we recall, had informed the Concert Champetre, with its clear contrast of urban and rustic. In the New York Venus and the Lute Player, Titian evokes that hierarchy to affirm a range of amorous experience effectively playing with the possibilities and alternatives that had more generally structured social discourse. In the Three Ages of Man, he had early exploited the sexual implications of the flute, so suggestively held by the girl in that painting, signaling youthful libido. And so when Venus herself fingers the instrument, it inevitably carries connotations beyond the concert. Her own touch confirms the tactile appeal of her body even as her upward gaze and coronation invoke a higher realm. We recall that it was Athena who invented the pipes and who rejected them because playing them so distorted her face. Interestingly, Titian never depicts the flute actually being played. Toward the very end of his career, <clears throat> Titian extended his concern with the attent with attentive musician and reclining nude. But now returning to the pastoral world, <clears throat> in the haunting and enigmatic picture generically known as Nymph and Shepherd. Responding to its melancholy mood, Erwin Panofsky suggested that the couple, for the couple, the names of Paris and Oinone, the Trojan prince in disguise on Mount Ida, and the nymph who loved and protected him, and whom he was to abandon for a more fateful reward. The pathos of that relationship does fit the mood of the painting. Filled as, it, filled as it is with, uh, with uncertain premonition. Here too, we are present at a pause in the music making, invited to imagine the lingering notes with the, uh, imagine the lingering notes with the nymph who turns her back to the source of the sound. 
the motif of the ardita capra, the boat, the goat so boldly reaching for the foliage, was a conventional motif of the pastoral. Goats, of course, contributed the bestial lustfulness to the satyr. Its prominence here, so strikingly silhouetted against the shimmering sky, seems to inform this goat with special significance. Its reach, its yearning, suggests an ardor, perhaps the very passion that seems to be fading with the sound of the flute no longer being played. Despite its explicit, if only suggestive, iconography and the narrative implications of the nymph and shepherd, it is the concert champêtre that seems especially relevant here, as though Titian had been contemplating the implications of that pastoral painting, searching out its dramatic and narrative potential. Whatever her specific identity, the nymph here is no longer the abstract personification of the place. She now represents the affective core of the image. Like Venus, she is or was the object of a musical courtship. Unlike Venus, however, she is fully responsive to her suitor. Looking back over her shoulder to him, her eye actually catches ours. We are thereby invited to share her mood, whether of hope or doubt or fear. The reading is ours. By the very openness of its execution, the overall suggestiveness of its surface, the nymph and shepherd engages the viewer in the fabric of its textures and colors. These qualities effectively reifying, giving substance to Georgianesque tonalism. As much as the ambivalence of its figural affect, these tactile qualities of painting itself, suggestive and floating, complement the synesthetic implications of its subject. As we see and hear, the imagined sound of a once-sounded flute. Regardless of whether he could play an instrument or sing along, Titian, more fully than any other artist, enabled the art of painting to realize its aspiration to the condition of music. Music, that is, as an incitement to love. In his final musical statement, however, he abandons the amorous resonance of the theme to reconsider one of the originary myths of music itself. His representation of the flaying of Marcius is the last canvas to which the aged master put his signature. The legend defines and enacts the musical contrast that Renaissance culture had appropriated to its own social and intellectual hierarchies. That is, the contrast between the higher stringed instrument and the lower wind. Having made himself a virtuoso on the reed pipes, the satyr Marcius was so proud of his achievement that he dared to challenge Apollo, the god of music, to a musical contest. It was agreed that the winner of the competition could choose to do his will upon the loser. The outcome was inevitable. Such hubris could not go unpunished, and the god chose to flay the satyr alive an operation described in sanguinary detail by Ovid in the Metamorphoses. A competition between immortal and mortal, the legend has invited a number of interpretations dealing with the triumph of the spirit over the body, whether cast in Neoplatonic terms or Christian. Without even considering the issue of programmatic intentionality, suffice it to say that any mythological representation in the Renaissance 
was open to interpretation, indeed invited it. On the thematic level of the narrative, however, Titian has clearly offered his own interpretation. His pictorial translation actually undermines the values conventionally associated with the ancient myth, essentially inverting the values of high and low, and thereby complicating any moralization. Apollo, the blonde god of enlightenment, stoops to conquer, lowering himself to perform his distasteful task. His very posture effectively pays homage to his victim. And the humble pipes that dared challenge his heavenly lyre are raised on high. A trophy, appropriately blowing in the wind. This rustic syrinx is in turn celebrated by, a supposedly, by the supposedly higher strings as the singer sounds a note of lamentation. The pathos of this most musical of mourners, the phrases from Shelley's Adonais, his lament on the death of Keats, that pathos transcends the note of horror struck by the little satyr to offer us a more noble affect. Titian has made the myth very much his own. He has reinterpreted it and its values in this most meditated composition, in which the judging figure of King Midas, a portrait of the painter himself, sits brooding as contemplative observer, serving in effect as our surrogate. With him, we witness the punitive surgery but even more directly, for we stand outside the narrative along with the artist. And what, and, what, sorry, what since antiquity had been seen as the inevitable triumph of the god has been recast by the Venetian painter. Inverting the values of the myth, Titian is not, as some have su suggested, Titian is not at all on the side of Apollo. At the very core of the image, the body of Marcius is the focus of attention of the other actors, except of course for two, the Saturino who confronts us directly and the musician who celebrates the pipes that are a metonymic extension of Marcius himself. And that central focus is shared by the viewer on this side of the picture plane. The hanging body of the vanquished satyr is deliberately twisted from its trussed goat legs, from its narrative participation as object of Apollo's scalpel it is turned toward the picture plane. The human half of Marcius is offered directly to our view. Only the blade of Apollo comes between us. Other depictions of the punishment of Marcius, including that of Giulio Romano, whose drawing may well have served as a model for Titian, other depictions tend to be presented as narrative, an action unfolding laterally across the surface of the picture. Titian, structuring a composition of centripetal focus, inflects the subject into an iconic mode. Turned from profile to frontal view, the human body of Marcius is displayed in maesta for our direct contemplation, suspended upside down like some martyred pagan Saint Peter. As the Olympian executioner exacts his victor's spoils, we join the others as witness to what we likely consider an unjust punishment.
You'd hardly know there were nine children singing there, would you? Because they, they're so musical. They sing. Uh, it, it, this was, it was electrifying, absolutely extraordinary. And what was absolutely fascinating was that in the follow-up project, when um, a virtual reconstruction was made of this church, let me show you, it looks horrible. I mean, you, you'd never put that up on a, on a website as, you know, now you can kind of navigate your way around this. It's not meant for that. It's simply meant to show, you know, each of these different pieces is given a different coefficient depending on the materials and how much relief there was and, how, you know, how much detail to, to um, uh, reflect or, or absorb sound. And, th and these are people here. So uh, this, is, this is the sort of abstract representation of it. And here is uh, sound come, you know, being projected through the building from the singing gallery. And it changes color depending on the number of times it's been reflected um, from something, you see. So what is particularly extraordinary is the next one I'm going to show you because then you understand why this building had this extraordinary effect of wrapping you up in the sound that seems to descend from on high and envelop you, uh, something it's very difficult to describe. It was totally sort of transforming to hear. And look at this. See what happens. See how it comes down like rain from the ceiling. So um, I'm going to wrap this up now because um, it, it's, it's, it's after 6 o'clock. But um, let me show you these charts, which are quite complicated to understand. This is the, the, the young man um, who is a summer job, put all our, uh, he's an engineering student, put all our figures into, into the databases. Um, this is the most reverberation, and this is the least reverberation in these diagrams. And they're given different colors according to the type of church. So the green ones are the monasteries and friaries. The red is St. Mark's. Uh, the blue are the hospitals. And the yellow are the parish churches. Now, these sort of outliers here are um, measurements that were made in little chapels in big churches, which behave more like small churches than big ones. So, um, you know, this, for example, is a very enclosed chapel in a very big church. So that's why it's, it's so unresonant. But um, what you can see very clearly is that they're, they're grouped by typology, which we really hadn't expected particularly before we started this project. So the most reverberant are the big churches. Of course, sound has a big part, uh, uh, volume. The volume in, in the sense of size is a very, very important uh, parameter in determining the acoustics. The bigger the volume, the more resonant the space. Um, you know, you're if, you, if, 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 if you sing in a, in a telephone booth or something, you're never going to get much resonance from it. Um, but the San Marco is pretty acceptable for... Um, Resonance. It's quite reverberant, but not disastrously so. The parish churches are really much better for the spoken voice and not particularly good for music, which in a sense reflects, I think, some of their parochial functions. 
Uh, but the best, by far, around three-second reverberation, um, are the hospitals, which were the, the churches that were deliberately constructed to make a good acoustic and modified over the centuries to make a good acoustic for uh, music because that brought them more revenue. So, in a sense, they had, they had a real incentive. And so the, 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 the point to, really to emphasize is that the liturgical use of the buildings, um, which determined their form in every sense, um, spatial uh, and visual as well as acoustic, actually gave very different results for different types of devotion, different types of religious institution, different types of liturgy. So um, the conclusions in as far as one can summarize them very, very briefly would be something like this, um, that the acoustic characteristics closely followed their typology and liturgical needs, um, and that the later follow-up project really supports our suspicion that the very large churches um, are much less difficult acoustically uh, when they're full up, as they would have been on great state festivities uh, in Renaissance Venice. So thank you very much for listening. This lecture by Professor Deborah Howard of Cambridge University was delivered as the first of four public events intended to accompany the Frankie Seminar on Art and Music in Venice. Established by Richard and Barbara Frankie, the Frankie Seminars and Lectures are intended to introduce important topics in the humanities to a general audience and to share the work of distinguished visiting scholars. Professor Howard's public lecture took place at Yale's Whitney Humanities Center on September 15, 2011.